Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. In the end, you have to find somebody that loves you for like totally who you are and like the worst things about you. That's the only way. There is no other secret, you know. Not if you're really talking about love. If you're talking about a relationship, that's anybody can do that. But if you're talking about a a bonding that's going to stay together for 22 years, that person has to really love you. And and they have to know that you love them for who they are, too. That was Vincent D'Onofrio. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. If this is the first time you've listened to the show, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, welcome back. I apologize for the delay. Sometimes this happens because uh, we're human and no one here on this show that makes it possible is getting paid. Everyone here is uh, doing it for the love of the thing that we're doing. And sometimes life gets in the way. That was the case this weekend. I don't tend to share all the personal things about my life on the podcast. I think I'm just a little afraid to sound like Mark Maron, but I'm looking at Delizia, our dog, and I'm thinking about the past weekend, and we just wrapped this narrative piece I wrote for an album of an artist that may or may not have come on this podcast in the past. I'm going to be vague about it until I am contractually allowed to talk about it, which I think is soon. But yeah, I uh, I feel odd saying this, but I am 
happy. It was with a small crew, uh, not dissimilar to the show in which a handful of people band together to make something they believe in. I am sleep-deprived, loopy, probably mildly incoherent, but we made it happen. And that is also the explanation as to why this episode is two days late. But despite our tardiness, I have not failed on the actual conversation here. We had Vincent D'Onofrio on the show. He is a goddamn legend, and what a joy to have him come to my house and talk for an hour. I'm not going to introduce him. You know what he's from. Of course, we talk about Stanley Kubrick, Robert Altman, a tenure on Law and Order, playing Orson Welles and Ed Wood. But we also talk about his new film, his unofficial official directorial debut. It's called The Kid. Set in 1879, it follows a young boy and his teenage sister as they go on the run across the American Southwest to escape their violent uncle. It stars Chris Pratt, Dane DeHaan, Ethan Hawke, Vincent himself. I can say, having watched the film, this is not a case of a very talented actor just making a movie because he can and and wants to. I think D'Onofrio has a real talent as a filmmaker, and the film is out in theaters now in limited release. It will be expanding across the country in the coming weeks. It's definitely a film that deserves to be seen on the big screen in a theater. As a Western, it has a kind of largeness about it that benefits from seeing it in a theater. So yeah, if time and budget permits, and it's playing at a theater near you, I would definitely recommend going out and seeing it. Apologies once more for the tardiness, but I have a feeling this episode is a little bit worth the wait. That's how much faith I have in Vincent D'Onofrio, mainly. But I really love this talk, and I hope you do too. So, here is Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio? Yes. Welcome. Thank you. You are uh, in my house. I am. It's probably unlike other interview situations you've had in the past. Yeah, so I've, I, I have to say, though, I've actually noticed things changing into this direction, and uh, it's kind of cool. How do you like, feel about it? I feel very good about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think my whole life is surrounded around making things less complicated, and this is right down that street. So, yeah. yeah, we've streamlined some things for sure. A little bit. A lot of bit. <laughs> that comment was almost like it's a little too rough around the edges for you. No, no, it's not. It's 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 actually I'm very being very sincere. You know, the way that my wife and I and my kids live our lives, we live it in a very simple form in New York. The way I shoot a movie, I do it in, as simply as possible to make things as less complicated as they can be. So it's, mm-hmm. No, I like it. I think it's the way to go, man. Okay, great. Yeah. And I have a friend who a very close friend, like a brother to me, Dax Shepard, who has a podcast situation, and it's two chairs. Sit down and talk. Yeah. I want to get to the kid, but there is a long journey before you get to that place in making this movie. There, there is. I want to hit a few stops along okay, the way. Good. Something I'm always fascinated by, my parents split up before I was one, which that like jars people sometimes, and then they split up again 
to different people uh, when I was around nine. I know you come from a family of divorce. What is your memory in New York before you moved to Florida of your family splitting? My dad left when I was in Florida. Okay. I'm assuming it was always rocky, but the actual split happened after we moved to Florida. But I have two older sisters. Mm -hmm. So the oldest, my sister Tony, probably had to deal with a lot of that. Um, She probably remembers New York. I don't remember New York pre-Florida. I remember New York during Florida and then after Florida, but Uh not pre-Florida. I think I was way too young. Mm -hmm. And I think I was nine when I realized my parents don't like each other. (laughs) What event triggered that? My dad having girlfriends Mm -hmm. and my mom working two jobs, you know, as a waitress to pay the bills. That's a complicated situation. Yeah. Do you remember around that age where you realized, oh, my parents are imperfect people? Yes. It's an upsetting realization I, I felt as a kid. Yeah, but you always seem to have like respect for one of them more than you have the other, I, or I did anyway. I think I respected my mother because I was lazy by nature, and and the idea that she had to work so hard was like so, so something that I didn't feel like I would be able to do naturally. Foreign. <laughs> and I respected her for that, you know? Do you really feel you're lazy by nature? Oh, yeah, I think that most actors are lazy by nature. <laughs> but you weren't an actor back then. I think I was born lazy, so therefore born an actor. Really? Yeah. I had not heard this theory before. Yeah. I've heard that. I have never met an actor that isn't a lazy bum. Really? Yeah. It doesn't even matter if they're like those superhero kind of <laughs> well-worked-out actors. They're all fucking lazy. They're all lazy. Why do you think that is? I think it makes us who we are. I think that... We try to cut corners and that you never really can. And so you have to go through the pain of actually stepping up. And I think that's where our emotions come from, mm. that pain. I like that theory. I mean, that, that could be, you could do yeah. a whole thesis on that. Uh, your first entry point into anything resembling acting is, I know you. Magic. Actually, that's not what I had. That's not what you had. But I have the magic. My dad's community theater. I have that, but I know. So you do magic in Florida. There is a Cuban shop. Yeah. And uh, you're very good. Well, you know, you come to my house. Cheat. Yeah. Yeah, I got. I got to do something. Do research. I do something. Yeah. Um. (laughs) uh, What are your memories of that place and that time in your life? It's they're pretty vivid. It was during the period where a lot of Cubans were coming over to Florida. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just lawyers and doctors and activists. It was also entertainers. And this couple, this fabulous magician and wife couple, opened a magic shop next to the grocery store. Mm. It was like weird. Right. Like It's like... There was a grocery store, Winn-Dixie. Oh, Winn-Dixie. Holy cow. And a pharmacy... That was had a diner attached to it, mm. and then what used to be a salon, nail salon, was a magic shop. Converted so, into a magic shop. So weird in this little outdoor mall. Mm. There was a Kentucky Fried Chicken in the parking lot, <laughs> and then this couple. And I immediately went in because I'd been to a magic shop before in Disney 
Disney used to have a Magic Shop. It was the first Magic Shop I'd ever been in. I just couldn't believe it. I was, I was, I was shocked. And 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 there was all these fabulous pictures. On is this what you want to be talking about? Yes, it is. And this, and this is not boring to you. No. So I'll let you, all, uh, by the way, I'll let you know if it gets boring. Okay, good. I got your back. Yeah. Are you gonna go like boring? Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay, awesome. That's my training in radio. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome stuff, man. That's the way to do it. All these fabulous pictures of them on the wall. This couple doing their performances in Cuba, like big stages and big outfits and stuff, you know? So they came here and they, they had been working decades prior. Yeah. 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 And they took you under their mm-hmm. wing. Why was that? Two wings. Yeah. No, there was just one wing. The magician took me under his wing because I didn't have any money and I really liked the stuff. And I think he felt bad for me and he would give me instructions mm. instead of the thing the actual trick he would give me the instructions and i would build the trick really yeah how and old I, are you here 10 and i had my neighbor denny and i wish i could remember denny's last name but it's gone blank because there was this his lovely daughter renee and for some reason renee in my psyche has caused her last name to go blank. Mm. So I can't remember their last names. And her brother's name was Keith and her mom's name was Eileen, but I can't remember their last name. We'll stick the first name. There's something bad about that and something really annoying about it, but this is another story. Mm -hmm. He worked with metal, making signs. So he had a whole factory of machines that could form metal and solder it together. Mm. So he helped me. He made tricks for me. This is an odd thing for a 10-year-old to be doing. I would give him the designs. I would draw them out because I was good at art. And he would make them for me. And then everything else in magic is felt. Mm. Felt is like the cheapest material there is. Like you can't get a cheaper material than felt. Maybe burlap. But all the tricks are made with felt. So it's like Mm. perfect. So free tin, free things, free felt, very cheap. And I made tricks. And I started doing shows. Aside from the actual work of becoming some sort of young, precocious magician, <laughs> okay. what were you like uh, as an early teenager then going into high school? I had no life. No life at all. Mm. I was just on my own, scared of people, scared of girls, scared of guys. I belonged to a little gang and they were always, I never trusted them. Why scared? Just shy, not wanting to participate. You look back at it and you, you, you know it's because of like self-worth or whatever, but you don't know why you would be lacking self-worth at that age. You know, It's weird. But I never really sat around and go, boy, if I could only get my worth up a little bit. Of course, awesome. I mean at that age. It wasn't like that. That's not <laughs> a concept. You just are what you are. That's actually like a, I feel like that's like a 1990 and up concept. Yeah. I don't even think that was really considered in the 70s. No, so you just are who you are. And you spend a lot of time listening to music, Elton John and the Beach Boys and Queen. and Were those your people? There was more than that, a lot more. Cheech and Chong. <laughs> but it's funny, bamboo. although you don't know about self-worth, it still seems like you knew at the time that you were lonely. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I didn't know the true definition of that, but yes, I, I think that I felt it probably, yeah. But you know, the thing is, is that I used to occupy my time like anybody would. You with know, what? Like with drawing and playing with guys, you know, soldiers and stuff and building models. I was told that at a certain point in your high school career, we'll call it a career, you pivot and stop doing magic. I do. Because uh, something, something about wanting to get laid. Yeah. Because <laughs> magic is not sexy. You yeah. choose women over magic. Women yeah, but I didn't magic. get any women. I just thought it's, it's you know, it's, it's not sexy. <laughs> yeah. And then I stopped. Did that cause you any sadness? Because <laughs> you loved magic. That's an earnest question. I know you're laughing at the earnest question, yeah, Vincent. It's really but, funny. But, but it, it's, it's genuine because it was something you loved. And you did love the people attached to the shop. And I have to imagine to give that up at that age, the things that we do in our life is all we have at that age. It's what matters to us. Yeah. So to forfeit that for... Yeah. Well, this is what happened. I stopped doing shows, but I didn't stop doing magic. Mm -hmm. Like I just didn't do shows anymore. You mean you didn't do it publicly? Yes. You did it privately? I did it privately. I kept up my skills, but I got rid of the doves and the boxes and all that stuff. And then you didn't get laid? No. But you tried. Mm. Trying's half the battle. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure how much I really tried. <laughs> I couldn't put a few sentences together. I was very much inside my own head, probably very kind of on the spectrum kind of you know very difficult very socially inept that kind of kid mm. yeah is there a moment where that changes for you does working in the community theater with your father help no i i built sets and i ran sound and i ran lights and watched him and other people act and when i was still doing the shows i actually did a show one time to open up a melodrama that they were doing they mm. were doing a melodrama called dirty work at the crossroads and i would open the show with the whole magic act i like that you're smiling here yeah and that was the last time i did magic because this girl came along who was the daughter of a judge in town and i was like i can't do the show anymore because she's alive <laughs> true story no, and then I started to think, you know, my sister was was uh, into drama her whole life, like drama clubs and high school, and I didn't do anything like that. And she said to my dad, she said that she wanted to go to New York, go back to New York and to study acting. And I said, I'd like to go too, mm. you know? So you and tag along. So I tagged along, and we got into this company called the American Stanislavski, and we started studying. So what year is that is that that mid 70s at that wow. point yeah no trying to remember. late it would be late 70s early 80s 79 okay so you're 80. studying theater you're also working as a bouncer i'm working as a bouncer what do you remember about new york at that age is that an exciting time for you yeah it was rock and roll man it was awesome it was. I mean, I know that sounds weird. and doesn't sound weird. I just want to... Old-fashioned. You can comment further on it. It was rock and roll. It was... Um, uh, disco was flaming up, and punk was flaming down behind it. You know, it was like... 
both sides were in their glory. Sex Pistols and CBGBs and the Mud Club, and that was all coming up. All these bands like the Dead Kennedys and the Talking Heads were being formed at the time at colleges, and they, everybody was experimenting in the rock clubs, and then the discos were, were just like out of touch with reality. There was so much cocaine and famous people wrecked in bathroom stalls and you know it, I was, mean, it seems like a wonderful time <laughs> it was intense man i used to carry movie stars out and dump them in their limousines when i was a kid the rolling stones did you think that was normal yeah it was normal it was happening every day you isn't know? that wild it's pretty wild yeah and then disco went as soon as the british bands came up with like this new wave thing then um or they or the, i think america called their music new wave something happened there disco went and all those disco clubs turned into rock clubs and mm. i bounced and worked the door at all of them i would study and do that and then eventually i would do plays and do that and then eventually i don't want to skip over too much but no? eventually mm-hmm. i ended up on broadway and i would still work at the club <clears throat> all night go to sleep sleep all day take a train up to broadway do the show take a train downtown to go work and work in the club all night that was open missions that was open admissions and other off-Broadway stuff that I did. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of little things here and there. Since you have a great memory, what seems to be pretty vivid, mm-hmm. curious, your days as a bouncer yeah. in New York at that time, yeah. what is the night you come back to often in your head? as like, I cannot believe that happened. Well, it's funny that you say that because recently, and this is, this is quite something actually, because if it happened in your life, you'd understand why it's quite something. Okay. So Public Image Limited was a band. I don't know if you know who they were, but I it don't. was basically Johnny Rotten's band after the Sex Pistols. It was called Public Image Limited. And they decided to do this show at the Ritz, which was the biggest rock club in Manhattan, and I worked the door there. And... They decided they had this 30 by 30 foot video screen. It's when MTV started. And they decided to drop the screen down in front of them and play in silhouette mm. from the beginning of the concert. So you never would see them. And it was packed with like 3,000 people. And the audience did not accept it. And a riot broke out. The screen was pulled down. People were being thrown around. It was really, really bad. Like a lot of blood. A lot of people screaming, uh-huh. people panicking. It was really bad. Because they wanted to see their faces? Because it turned out from just them saying, we want the screen down and you have to perform in front of us, to Johnny Rotten not helping the situation with his attitude. And then it just turned out to be an all-out brawl with everybody in the audience and nobody really knew what they were fighting over. They were just fighting because that's what they did. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they had their reasons. but And so a lot of people that I knew got hurt hurt in many different kinds of ways a lot of people ended up in the hospital i got out of there pretty good i got a few people out and then had to you know it it was a rough night but here's the point i'm on youtube with my son right and we're looking at stuff and i said you know what i'm gonna look up the ritz because i was you know they know the stories about when i was a kid so i look it up and on the line of stuff was Riot at the Rich Public Image Limited. And, and it's a fucking recording of when the riot starts. 
and I'm there. So it's this audio recording of Rotten yelling back and forth with the audience, the, the thing coming down, the screen coming down, the riot breaking out. It's unbelievable. And you can see yourself? No, you can't. It's, it's audio. Oh, it's just audio. Yeah. But there's a picture, but it's of, 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 I think, Johnny Rotten. But it's just audio. But someone took that. Someone, someone recorded it. Yeah, most likely the sound guy. Oh, my God. So the idea of being there as a kid and then listening back to it as my kid and hearing the same sounds that happened that night. Complete full is, circle. It's, it's amazing. It's, yeah. It's, that's... So that's the one that I always go back to. There were some other pretty crazy ones. I think that's something. So it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. Oh, so we can, yeah. we can put that in. You could, this. yes. Yeah. Oh, you could we're going to have to do that. For sure, we're yeah. going to have to do that. Yeah. I think you're boring. You're boring fucking audience. That's incredible. Yeah. So theater's going pretty well for you in New York. Um, it's going okay. I'm not making any money really, but it's but going you're okay. performing. I am. I'm acting a lot. Yeah. I mean, money. You know, that comes yeah. later. Yeah. So that's early '80s, mid '80s. You're doing better. Every once in a while, I have bad times where I'm thrown out of a place, like uh, an apartment, or the money gets to be too spare, and I end up sleeping in the park with my legs wrapped around my 10 speed so it couldn't get stolen while I was sleeping at night. There were those nights too. Really? Yeah. It wasn't a lot. There was people that had it a lot rougher than I did, but that was what would happen when money would run out. Did your family know about that? No. You wouldn't tell them? No. They didn't know anything. I didn't talk to them. What about your sister who was in New York? No. Who probably had a place you could stay at? Most likely. She was a bartender. Mm. Is that out of pride? No. I just really felt like it was my adventure and... This is part of it? Yeah. You're giving one word answer suddenly. I know. Well, there's not a lot to say more about that other than it was my adventure... And I was, you know, I knew that I was going to be okay. I always knew I was going to be all right. I didn't know that I was going to be successful or anything, but I knew I was going to be all right. Where do you think that belief came from? Because I, I was always in control of myself. Like, I was never out of control. I was never, there wasn't, there hasn't been a moment in my life where I was like, oh, where was I for the last two hours? Like, mm -hmm. what happened to me yesterday? Like, there's never been a moment in my life like that. Like a blackout reckless <laughs> yeah, There's never been anything like that. I tried. You tried. It's not for lack of trying. And you failed. Never, never blacked out. So I want to hit a few movies with you as your acting career ramps up. Okay. I'm going to ask about ones that you've talked about before. I'd like to not talk about the things you've talked about before. That's a good idea. If that's possible. Yeah. Let's start with Full Metal Jacket because we have to. Okay. Did your parents have any children that live? Sir, yes, sir. I bet they regret that. You're so ugly you could be a modern art masterpiece. 
What's your name, fat body? Sir Leonard Lawrence, sir. Lawrence, Lawrence, what, of Arabia? Sir, no, sir. That name sounds like royalty. Are you royalty? Sir, no, sir. Do you suck dicks? Sir, no, sir. Bullshit, I'll bet you could suck a golf ball through a garden hose. Sir, no, sir. I don't like the name Lawrence. Only faggots and sailors are called Lawrence. From now on, you're Gomer Pyle. Sir, yes, sir. Do you think I'm cute, Private Pyle? Do you think I'm funny? Sir, no, sir. Then wipe that disgusting grin off your face. Sir, yes, sir. When you look back on it now, besides the surface details of the situation and, and obviously how masterful Kubrick is, what do you remember about having to inhabit that? What do you remember about you at that age? Method acting has a lot to do with it. The, the way you go about doing it, the way my mindset was, the exercises that I was doing to be able to pull it off, the psychological exercises, the loneliness, again, being very unattractive to women when I was used to being, you know, mildly attractive to women <clears throat> because I had the 70 pounds on. And, and just the loneliness of that and the dedication to how, how I wanted to portray the character. And I knew that it was gonna to be tough, and it was gonna be real tough. There are things that you learn uh, when you're tra being trained in the Stanislavski system and in method acting, both of those techniques. There's things that you learn that are not a whole lot of fun, exercises that you learn that are not a whole lot of fun to maintain, that bring you to places that make you able to sell scenes like the ones you're talking about. Hmm. That makes sense? sense? It, it does. Yeah, so that's where I was. And the practice of that and the, the execution of those things and um, it being my first movie, it being me watching people get fired around me that weren't as good as he thought they were going to be and he let them go and hired other people. Was that unnerving? Yeah, man. That's crazy. A ticket slid under your flat door with a plane flight home saying you're not needed anymore. That's heavy duty when you had like a incredible part in a Stanley Kubrick movie, can you imagine? So every morning you feared? Well, not every morning, but for a long time. As soon I, I realized that they're shooting so much of me that now it would be like you ridiculous. Can't. Why would yeah. they fire me? You know, it's like. You're, you're too deep in. They've gone too deep in. Yeah. yeah, I've fooled them this far, so. What did Kubrick teach you about directing that you maybe applied to your own experience? And maybe you didn't apply it, but you just watched and thought, holy yeah. cow. Yeah. Well, there's two ways to answer that question. I was never really conscious of being taught anything. I was conscious of trying to learn things, mm -hmm. but I wasn't conscious of being taught in a literal literal way. So how did you learn? But, but, but wait, but having directed now, I know you don't want to get to this test quickly, but I just want to say that having directed now, you suddenly realize exactly how much you have been taught uh, over 30 years. Without even knowing it. Entirely. Without even knowing it until then. And because it, it's, it's, to say it's ever, ever been a conscious thought before would be nonsense. It's just, it's just not. But to, to, to ref, but once you're on a set and once you're directing and once you're, you, you realize, oh my God, all these men and women have taught me stuff mm -hmm. that I just know intrinsically now. Like it's, innately part of me that's a wild thing yeah yeah that's as wild as watching kubrick set up a shot 
and seeing the detail behind him setting up. It's as cool as that to mm. act, to actually see, oh, fuck. I wouldn't know this unless I did this with this guy or this girl. So did he do the thing that I've read, which is he'd take the viewfinder and he'd walk around the space in the viewfinder until he found the frame that made sense? Yes, but you're missing one aspect of it. Oh, please tell me. And then he would drop a line with a weight. He'd have a weight. That you know, like the like um, yeah. masonaries use and shit. Just so that it ha- it was marked. So and somebody would get on the floor and mark exactly where the spot was, and the camera had to be placed exactly there. Insane. Insane. Was he just and wonderful? Was he just an unbelievably rigorous? About the job. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an accident that his photography is the way it is in his stills and in his cinematography. Mm. And that his cameras were so well-oiled and maxed out in advancement. I want to know, the last thing on him, is at that age for you, do you ever stand on that set and think like, oh, fuck, I just got to do this right. I can't fuck this up. Is it daunting at any point? It's always daunting to put yourself out there. It's daunting. Yeah, the answer is yes. It's daunting. It's always daunting to assume that you know the right way to tell a story Mm -hmm. in that moment. And the idea of actually thinking, this is the way we're going to do it, and then not folding and like choking to death and dying, the idea that you you don't die. You actually have to do what you said is the right thing to do and then mm. follow through with it is daunting. And it's daunting for the same exact reasons you're asking the question is because people like Stanley Kubrick <clears throat> have existed. Right. And does that same sort of daunting feeling apply to Robert Altman and the player? Uh, absolutely. The way his presence was on set, just him as a person, not even during the player, Mm-hmm. But just as a person, his half of joint in his pocket the whole day. <laughs> the idea that his favorite thing on set was a baby jib, which is a, for people that know, is a, like a miniature crane with a camera on one side and weights on the other. Mm-hmm. Baby jib on wheels, which are then on tracks. And and tons of cable. Back then, it was everything was cabled, you know. So he would you would have five cablers because the a jib can go up, down, and around, and back and forth on a track. So you, the, the actors can go anywhere they want, as long as they step over the track without you seeing that they're stepping over a track. Right, which makes sense for his movies. Which makes sense for his movies, but very hard for the cablers <laughs> because they have to run and People get the not cable out the of cablers. every shot. That's insane. Yeah. So. Um, but but that's just a little thing. But his presence on set and the way that you would move into scenes and move out of scenes was it was extraordinarily comfortable and and wonderful. And you know, sometimes you heard action, sometimes you didn't. You just knew that you were supposed to go, like just do it. And sometimes you'd start, and then he'd realize that you were doing it, and he'd say action, and he'd realize that you were already doing it. Things like that would happen. It was very kind of loose and very friendly. And he was a real smart ass. So like if you thought of a really good idea for the scene and it actually worked, he would actually come up. He did this to me. That's why 
What was the idea? My idea was that I do believe that somebody could actually drown in a puddle of water if they were semi-conscious. That the whole thing about drowning in a glass of water is not really impossible. It is actually possible. You can suffocate in any situation. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that he would be punching me and my head would hit the puddle and for even like 30 seconds, if I'm unconscious and water fills my lugs and p- blocks up my passage, I'm going to die. And so he said, well, then that's, that's the whole idea. That's what we have to get away with. That's why it maybe he killed you, maybe he didn't think. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, that's what I mean. That's why I'm telling you. And he goes, okay, great. He goes, from now on, this is my idea. Just like that, just like that. And I would say, okay. <laughs> That's the kind of person he was. Yeah. And you were like, it's Robin Rama. So you're like, fuck yeah, man, take it. We've had um, a couple of people on who's worked with him. And people give varying stories. Uh-huh. The general sense is that he's an asshole. <laughs> but at the very least, he's a skilled asshole. Yeah. Is that fair? I, actually, I don't want to be obstinate or anything but I, I you can be obstinate I, I i don't think he's an asshole i don't think he was an asshole what's a more fair description there were people around him that were assholes okay <laughs> but he himself was not i don't think he was an asshole he was always very very kind to me he would cut you over a woman though if he was interested in a woman and you were stepping on him in some way he would definitely like not like you like he would pull some kind of thing explain he was just a very competitive guy when it came to women okay oh you're saying if he's romantically interested in a woman i mean romantic is a you know but sexually interested yeah sure that was a dangerous area to go with him (laughs) was it ever spoken no that's wild yeah yeah and a lot of guys in the business are like that you know, mm-hmm. except for the young ones, because the young ones just get laid anyway. They don't care. Ah, yeah. yes. Yeah. People are competitive. Yeah. I was interested. This is a, a larger topic, but on that, mm-hmm. at that time, I mean, your acting career is going pretty well. You're in all kinds of movies. I think you were in JFK the year before, and you had all kinds of stuff after that. Is fame something you're interested in? I am interested in fame. Because of the money, that's the only thing that it that it helps me with is mm-hmm. to pay for me and my family to survive. And so one comes with the other. But the other part of it I've never been very good at, and it's why my life has ended up to be where it is now. What part is that? Where it's ended up to be? No, no, no. What part are you not good at? I'm not very good at selling myself to people. I'm not very good at being playing the part of an actor i'm not very good at pretending to enjoy being around people (laughs) and in this business there i have friends that are geniuses at it and i don't know how they do it i don't i don't know how they do it and they try to help me all the time but it doesn't doesn't seem to what do they say to you Uh, let me try and help you (laughs) over the years Many years now, over 30 years, maybe longer. I don't even keep, you know, I think it's somewhere around 35 years or something I've been acting, right? It's amazing, though, even with being socially inept a bit, I've still, over the years, gathered so many loyal people in my life. 
that I'm able to look back at my life and call upon them because I've been loyal to them and they've been loyal to me. Mm -hmm. And there's so many of them now because I'm almost 60 now and it's like there's this huge history now behind me. And uh, that's a fabulous, fabulous feeling that I've been able to maintain being as close to myself as I can and as honest to myself as I can and as honest to other people as I can and still have this amazing group of artists that I'm loyal to and that are still loyal to me and that will come and help me do stuff, you know? Is that how you got the kid made? A lot of it. I mean, I had to come up with a script and we had to get it financed and everything, but yeah, the idea of the teams that came to help me and the teams that told other teams to come and help me, mm -hmm. it's pretty phenomenal. This is your second film. This is my real, the first real film where I was like other people's money and, mm -hmm. you know. Not your own. Right. And it's not in my backyard upstate. Yeah. What was the hardest part of making it? Most challenging. The days to shoot it in 20 days. So, but I had endless amounts of energy, so it was okay. And I had all these great people showing up, so it was okay. But So you weren't lazy here? No. Not, not when I'm working, I'm not lazy. It's just that the idea of, it's, all, it's just so painful not to be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. But it was the days. But it was everybody pitching in and doing the, you know, the best they could, to what we, considering what we had, you know. If anything was challenging, that's what was challenging. A lot of stuff came very easy, and the challenge was to get it and not spend more money than I was allowed to and bring it in, you know? Are you calling in a lot of favors? No. I mean, I don't look at them as favors. I look at them like just friendships that keep going back and forth, you know? I do this, they do that, I do this, I do this, I do this, they do that, they do that, they do that, they do that, that. You know, it's like there's no, nobody's tallying up the... Mm -hmm. There's a few people in my life like that that are extremely loyal friends, you know. What's your temperament like on set? It's good. It's good. I was I was surprised actually. I was surprised. <laughs> Why surprised? Um I I thought that there would be panicky situations that would kick in and that I would you know, the nightmare is to lose your shit under extreme stress and pressure. But I had too much going for me. It was, uh, it was fine. And, and for some reason, you know, the acting gods are there and the, and the filmmaking gods are there. And somehow you get this brilliant idea and everybody's like, whoa, fuck, let's do that. It's like mm. uh, how that shit happens, I don't know, but it does. Is there a moment in your life where you decided that you did want to direct? Yeah. I did a film for Tim Burton where I played Orson Welles. Edward. Edward. I did a terrible job in Edward. Just awful job. Um, like, and like, I like Edward terrible? No, not even that great. Like worse than low class bad acting. I remember that. Yeah. I, and, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it that. Well, I'll tell you why. I have a million excuses, but none of them are real the truth is is that i was preoccupied and preoccupied for a bad reason and vincent you know i'm gonna ask you what's the reason life stuff you know like life heartbreak heartbreak and complications of living 
on two sides of the planet and that kind of stuff, geography and stuff like that. And so I didn't pull off the voice of Orson Welles. And so um, uh, who's the great voice guy? Uh, this is so bad because his name is so in my head, but I can never say his name. And I think it has to do with the whole reason why I'm talking about it. I think there's this block because he had to come in and do the voice. And I love this guy. This guy's amazing. But that's not my thing. Like, my thing is not letting people do voices for me. Like, my thing is doing the job full. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. And so that always stuck with me. And I didn't know how to get rid of that bad feeling. It was the, it's, the only, it's the one time in my whole career I wasn't happy with what I did. And you knew it while you were doing it. And I knew it while I was doing it, yeah. And I knew it afterwards when the film came out, too. And it's the one thing that's ever bothered me. And I had to figure out a way to rectify that. And so I had to make a movie. You made that short film. Yeah. And I felt better after that. Because you felt like you got it, right? I felt like I got it. I got what I wanted to get. I did the full out performance. I did say this, tell the story I wanted to tell in the voice that I wanted to say it in. And So you know when a performance is not going well? Yeah. For you? Yeah. Do you know when a film is not going well? Yeah. How can you tell? You're not always right, but yeah. You can tell because you see inadequacy around you constantly. You see the director doing shots that are never going to be used and the ones that should be being done are not being done. You see bad writing and where a writer will step on you and not let you help his writing. You see that sometimes. These days, though, I have to say that with all this, because there's so many venues, because of streaming and digital, there are so many more opportunities for young writers and the writing has gotten so much better. And so that makes an actor very, very happy because mm. good writing makes good performance. Right. You know, without that, we're nothing. But, you know, you, you see it. You see it happening. You see things. You can watch the ship sink while you're on it. And there's nothing you can do to save it. Nothing you can do to save it. It's too big. Is that depressing of a feeling? Yeah. You know, it's not the best feeling in the world. Moves on. I mean, you move on. Yeah. You did Law & Order Criminal Intent yes. for a decade. Nine years. Okay, nine years. I've watched that show six times in my life. But th the question I want to ask you, how do you not go insane doing that? You do go years? insane doing okay, it. Okay, okay, yeah. great. Yeah, the first four years are fun because you're... You're inventing the character. You're seeing mm -hmm. how far you can go. And then what happens is the writers start writing towards the stuff you invented. And then you have to keep reinventing and they keep writing towards that. And then you don't want to do it anymore. You wake up one morning and you say, you know, I'm done with this. I'd like to move on. And you can't. Contractually. Can't in any way. You'll be in breach. You can't move. You can't do anything. And, uh, but you're getting paid well. What does that have to do with anything? I mean, that helps. Pays rent. Yeah. But it doesn't make you happy. No. no. But it takes care it, of family. It, it takes care of family. And if making money in life makes you happy, then that's great. You'll be happy. But if making money in life doesn't make you happy, then you're going to be unhappy. It doesn't matter how much money you have, it, it just doesn't matter. 
yes, your kids can go to school and yes, you have a roof over your head and all that's good. That's what any person's going to do with their family is try to protect them and keep a roof over their head. And that's what I do too. And when it comes to that, it really doesn't matter the volume of money you have. Roofs are cheap and schools <laughs> are cheap, you know? So in the end, does it really matter how much money you have as long as you have enough to put the roof over their head if you're not happy? Now, if you're happy and you're making money, well, that's fucking good. That's good times for everybody. Yeah. One day you wake up and you say, okay, I'm done with this. Can I stop now? And you can't. So and you have to go for five more years. Yeah. How would you do it? You just do it. You just do it. And you figure out ways to get the boss to give you breaks. Because back then, they were still allowed to work you 18 hours a day, 10 months a year, six days a week. They say it's five days, but you work until the morning on Friday, uh, Saturday morning. You go from Friday to working Saturday morning. You sleep all day Saturday. You basically have Sunday off, and then you start at six again, five again Monday. So you do that for months and months and months at a time, 18 hours a day. So you're totally exhausted. Everybody around you is totally exhausted. Everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's making money, but they're totally exhausted and unhappy, and their, their loved ones at home are unhappy. And it's insane. It's insane. Now, look, there's a very good chance that it's just me, and nobody else has the same experience that I have, but I don't buy, that. I don't buy it. Okay. It's tough. And so what I did is I eventually figured out with the boss who was, who was this guy, Dick Wolf, who was a very cool guy. He, he, he helped me figure out a way to get more time off. So towards the last couple of years, I had a guy come in, Noth would come in and do a couple of shows and I would do one show and he would do one show. And then I, it started to be better. And then he had to find, he wanted to find somebody mm -hmm. to do me the favor to replace me so that the show could stay on. Everybody could still make money, but it would just be a different guy instead of my character. And that was Jeff Goldblum. And that was Jeff. And even I thought that because Jeff is Jeff and amazing, that that would work, but it didn't work. And so he asked me then to come in and do eight more episodes in a row to finish the show. And Kate and I went in and we did that. And then that was the end. And you're free. And then I was free. Did it, did and I immediately went back to like back to films, like doing playing several different characters, like like immediately, you know, because he needed to. I had to start down kind of back with some B films first before I started, because there were a couple of people involved in criminal intent that were upset with me and they were talking shit about me. And what were they saying? I don't know, but they were talking shit about me. How do you know that they get around? Because I know, yeah. But they're all still alive and healthy, so nothing's happened to them. And, uh, and uh, people were a little nervous about hiring me. So I had to prove that there is no devil out there, and I'm just the same actor I was when I first started, and nothing has changed. And, and it took me about two films, and then I started working back in A-list films again and mm. A-list projects, yeah. It's amazing, you know? I've never had a better time in my career, and... I've worked with all these amazing people and I'm back to doing television in a way that only a, only a veteran can, you know, will be allowed to. I don't have to sign lengthy contracts. I can do handshake deals with people. They trust me. I come in, I come out. It's fantastic. You've been married for 22 years? Yeah. 
How does that happen? It's really hard. <laughs> to see a young guy say that is very funny. Why? Because of the look in your eyes and the tone of your voice and everything. Because I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I want to know for myself. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah, I'm sure you are. <laughs> I'm glad I can get you to laugh, by the way. Dude, it's so funny to see you say that. Good. Yeah. You probably don't get asked very often. You have to find a person that is going to be okay with you. Who you are. And only ask for certain kinds of changes after this year, that year. You know, don't they don't ask you to change every day. You know, they just ask you to change some little things so that you guys can continue on your journey together. An know? annual change. Yeah. But in the end, you have to find somebody that loves you for like totally who you are and like the worst things about you. That's the only way. There is no other secret, you know. Not if you're really talking about love. If you're talking about a relationship, that's anybody can do that. But if you're talking about a, a bonding that's going to stay together for 22 years, that person has to really love you. And, and they have to know that you love them for who they are, too. Unequivocally. Yeah. And you also can't fuck around. Yeah. You cannot sleep with other people. I mean, not in my world, you can't anyway. Yeah, but then you see people try to do that. Well, people do it all the time. And then they either make it work or they don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't really hang out with intellectual people. So, like, the people that I hang out with are very kind of basic urge artists. They depend on just their basic urges. And <laughs> What does this mean? <laughs> it means, like, we don't try to intellectualize life. We just try to live it and... and, and and I, and, I, and I think that they are the types that are going to be with a partner that is going to say you cannot be with somebody else. Full stop. Full stop. Yeah. Yeah. You can have accidents here and there and slip-ups and stuff like that, but you cannot be with somebody else. Mm. Yeah. Do kids help? Sometimes. Sometimes. You, I mean, you have three, right? Yeah. Kids are... A trip on their own. Raising children is one of the most fun things in the world, but it's also one of the most complicated things in the world. Why is that? Because they're individuals. Each one is different. Each one is a real human being that needs to be respected and, you know, and dealt with in a very serious way. Because when they're young, you think, oh, you're just a little shit. You know, like, what are you saying? You know, but that's not the truth is, is that they're actually a living human being and mm -hmm. that they need... They need to be treated with as much respect as the next human being on the earth. And that's something that you have to do with them their whole life. So I have a 26-year-old daughter now. She's an incredible woman. And she's like that because of, of how she's figured it out. It's got nothing to do with, with me. I just have to respect her. You know, Kids are tough. But it's, there's so many aspects to it that are so much fun. When they start learning music and when they start realizing what art is and and what their potentials are and what what they re who they really might be and to watch all that happen is really really cool what has being a father taught you about being a man in the world you have to show up you have to show up you have to be there you have to really be present and you have to be there and 
There's no joke that it is a serious thing. There is most likely going to be nothing compared to it as far as responsibility. Mm. So you have to be a grown-up. You have to be... You can be like, you can go off and be a child again somewhere if you want, but then when you're around your children and when, you're, when it has something to do with your children, you got to be a grown-up. <laughs> you got to be there. Yeah. You have to show up. That's the main thing about being a real person. You have to show up. People expect you to, and it's a good thing to do that. Mm. Is there something uh, you wish young Vincent knew that you know now about making a career in this business? I don't know, that's a good question. I'm not sure how helpful that would be to know things that I know now. But I can imagine that um, the things I think about are the, are the petty things that I used to do when I was young that I know better now. You know, I wouldn't do those kinds of things. Like, I wouldn't lie to people now to try and protect myself or or, or try and protect somebody else. I have a much more confidence in, in the truth than I did when I was younger. If there's one thing, it's probably that. I was, you know, I was a real street kid when I was very young and there was a very much a, a loner and the time that I was out and about, there are sections in my life when I was out and about and it was rough, it was rough out there. So I think the truth, you know, to, be comp to have more confidence in the truth and to have more confidence in the fact that if you're brave enough to tell the truth and brave enough to be honest that even though it can be hard, things will be okay. They won't get more complicated because if you are dishonest and don't tell the truth, things just get more complicated. Mm. Well, I appreciate you telling the truth here mm. for the last hour, uh, as much truth as you possibly could, yeah. given that we're two strangers. Right. But um, it's been an honor having you. Alex. Vincent D'Onofrio, thank you. Thank you. Is it really an hour? Yeah. Special thanks this week to Silver Linings Entertainment, Lionsgate in Ian Chang, Vincent D'Onofrio's unofficial official debut film as a director called The Kid is out in theaters right now. It will expand across the country in the following weeks. To find out more about the film and Vincent, you can do so in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. There you'll find episodes with other actors, including Vigo Mortensen, Willem Dafoe, Alan Arkin, Alan Alda, Philip Baker Hall, and really so many wonderful other artists. You can also find every episode of the show on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed the conversation with Vincent, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. The show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our social media is by Crystal Farmer. Our booking is by Ian Chang. Our intern is Elliot Weintraub. Music by Dylan Peck. And our new producer of the show is the wonderful Alyssa Greenberg. 
I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.